This is The Thirst Tank, presented by Trap Brewing Company. You do everything you can, you can to ensure that this is going to turn into a good beer, but then you put it into a, an oak barrel that you have some idea what's in there, but, you know, sort of no idea what's in there. And uh, you let it sit and you hope that it follows the right path and turns into that really amazing beer that you can't get any other way. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Thirst Time. For those that might be coming into this show new, what we try and do is explore the careers, the trajectories, the journeys of some of the most creative and interesting people in the craft beer industry today. Today's guest is Daniel Endicott. Now, I met Dan maybe four or five years ago, maybe even longer than that at IMBC. He had a little Linda was set up next to Cloudwater. I think Paul had invited him over and they were pouring an IPA and some of their saisons. And I was just enamored. I was blown away. They were beautiful beers and they were great people as well. Uh, It was actually Dan who had a big influence on me getting into photography. We emailed afterwards and he sent me all his tips and how he kind of got up and running with it. So I actually owe Dan quite a lot, really. Yeah, so another episode, we explore Dan's love of British beer culture. They actually own what would be deemed almost like a traditional pub, but out in Ambler, Pennsylvania. We also cover Dan's past as an artist. He does all of the designs for Forrester Main Cans. Um, He's an amazing, amazing painter. Yeah, and all the bits in between. So without further ado... You are listening to Track Brewing Co. Presents the First Time, and this is our interview with Daniel Endicott. And we start with that all-important question, what was that first beer for him? Yeah, very specifically remembered. It's um, called Yards ESA, which uh, no surprise is like a a British-style beer from a brewery here in Philly. Uh, so it's like they're taking on the ESB. Um, There'll be a lot of uh, British brewery references, I imagine, in that. I would think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was just like you know, in a world of American kind of hoppy beers. When I was just getting into beer, I was like, ah, IPA is gross. You know, um, I tasted this thing and I was like, this is amazing. This, you know, I just specifically remember the first time I had it. It was like there's different aromas. You know, it was like European hops and malt, and it just worked together beautifully. And yeah, to this day, I just remember that beer, you know, it was a uh, really just and, 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 I, and as I was just saying there, there's going to be a lot of reference to UK stuff. We've been friends for a little while now, so we've talked among ourselves. And I always found your journey really interesting because it reverts back to British beer culture and like mine reverts to like more American beer culture. Right. So when you were drinking that beer, was it, was it because it felt so alien in a world of American kind of IPAs that that was the intriguing part? Um, I mean, I would say from my vantage point now, I'd say yes. But back then I, I don't, I, I was so new to beer that I wasn't even like, like I said, I thought IPAs were pretty gross because back then they were like, how bitter can we make this beer? And, you know, for someone new to beer, it was just so off-putting. Um, so I don't, I don't even think I had like a reference of IPAs. It was, it was just like, I don't know, this is a delicious product and it's I'm yeah. like, you know, um, I didn't even drink beer until I was like 24, like not even like crappy beer in college or anything just didn't care for it. Um, so it was sort of just like this 
totally new thing to me. Um, not even within the world of beer, just these new flavors, yeah. you know, in general. Um, and, uh, it's just like so subtle, but so complex at the same time. And yeah. Uh, yeah. So I don't think IPAs had anything to do with it. It was just like a beautiful. Yeah. Beer. Yeah. I mean, man, again, this is the first, so I don't know what episode this will appear on the, the new series, but this is the first one I've done in a while. It's all coming back to me. Those, those <laughs> early IPAs in America where it was just stone, like launching as oh much gosh. hot side hops yeah. into just <laughs> abuse your palate. And I remember Frank from humble sea being like, pretending to like it but mm. not really <laughs> just be right. like oh yeah this is delicious and just thinking i don't like this at all <laughs> yeah. i wish we could i wish we had a time capsule i'd love to go back and see like how truly bitter they were i mean like, yeah. people are starting like west coast ipas are, are now come back in, in fashion like we're, we make some and they're they're great but i'm curious how they would compare it to those beers back then you know i think I, they're bitter now but they're probably not at all bitter compared to those um, yeah i always think that and i guess like yeah that that hop introduction was probably predominantly on the hot side where people were just like loading things right. up like dogfish head with 90 minute um ipa and that kind of thing where it's just all hot mm-hmm. side additions and that's and i guess that's the traditional sense of where the hops were put in the the brewery process i guess if right. we can if we can launch back so I'm scooting all over the shop already, but <laughs> can you kind of tell us your trajectory? So you got into it quite late at 24 and I right. know that actually you headed to British shores to, to study. And I, I, sure did, I yeah. imagine because it was the trajectory of that beer took you, well, brought you okay. over here, should I say? Yeah. So, I mean, I, uh, I didn't even drink beer at all until I got my brother a homebrew kit for Christmas and, mm-hmm. uh, I did the first beer with him. And was really kind of in love with the process before even the product. And uh, so then I started drinking beer through making beer pretty much. And um, was just ever since that first ESA was just in love with British style beer. And uh, so as I got more and more into homebrewing, I was always just brewing British style beers pretty much. Um, And uh, they're hard to come by over here. So I was like, had a few examples to compare it to, but um, as I got like, really, really deep in home brewing and knew that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to open up my own brewery. Um, I knew I wanted to specialize in British style beers. So it's like, where else we're better to learn than going over to, to the UK. Um, so found this course at, um, university of Sunderland and, uh, so cool. brew lab. So I went over there, it was like a three week intensive course in like strictly making cast cast beer. Um, and it just totally opened my eyes up to a different way of making beer than like the American homebrew way where like everything was, super controlled and like you had to do it until like this this many days you did it here and there and that moved along and it was uh i just feel like american homebrew is just worry over like every step of the process mm-hmm. so it's 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 funny because i guess british brewing I, I maybe haven't even viewed as much as that you know when you talk about like belgian brewing that whole mm-hmm. rustic nature of just not really caring i don't want to say care because Obviously, I know what you mean, I'm not yeah. a brewer, but there's, there's just, just an easiness around the whole process where it's like, yeah, we'll just leave it to boil for a little bit. Let's go get a beer and come back kind of thing. And I guess yeah. British beer was kind of similar. It wasn't it wasn't something that was totally um, in an engineering sense, just clean and polished. It was it was a little right. bit rustic. It was a little bit feel it out and yeah. open top fermenter kind of thing. Still controlled. I mean, in the same yeah. way that like Belgian beers are, but just like. I, I always consider it like, it's not like you don't care. It's just like, you believe in the beer and you believe in yourself. And it's like, 
it'll work out. You know, it's, it's fine. Yeah. Let it boil. Let's go have a beer. It'll be good. Or like, it's, it's not finished fermenting today, but it will be tomorrow or the next day. It's like, I don't know. Whereas I think like. Happy, you know, uh, happy brewer, work. happy beer. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's the philosophy. So, um, yeah. And I think like simplicity is maybe more correct way to talk about like classic British brewing in my eyes from like an American standpoint, where it's just like, I don't know, there's like, there's the beer is still fermenting. That's making carbonation. Let's like capture that carbonation instead of like letting it ferment out fully and then adding some, another step and to get the carbonation and like making it more complex. Let's just put it in a cask. We'll get that carbonation. Then we can serve it from the cask. And like, it's just, I don't know. It's just a beautifully simple way of making beer. Um, Yeah. It's so, it's so funny. I listened to you and Noah Bissell and I can't remember the, the other guy's name on uh, Matt. Matt. Yeah. Brilliant. Like beer podcast for anyone (laughs) listening. And it's, but it's just fascinating hearing the American take on cask beer because they're obviously speaking to you about cask beer because right. we'll get to it, but you guys have got a pub basically in, uh, in Ambler. Um, and they just, you know, they want to go deep and technical and understand all of the, the nature of what it is to do. And yeah, it just makes me kind of laugh because, you know, put it in the cask, get it going. But yeah. <laughs> <used to> <laughs> Yeah, they, uh, Noah, Noah and I were talking back this spring. I guess they served their first beer from cask at their place, and he was asking all these questions. And I was like, God, yeah, you know, we just like put it in the cask when it's done, and it's like, if it's too carbonated, you let it sit for a little longer. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's just like this need need for like details, which I get. Um, but at the same time, you just have to sometimes like let it go. So it was so you came over to the UK to brew beer mm-hmm. or learn how to brew beer kind of all from the trajectory of that first that first beer that really got you into it but there yeah. was something else about british culture that you kind of picked up as well cuz you guys are kind of an exponent of british beer culture in sure in ambler um, yeah i wonder if you can just talk a bit about that cuz i it's so funny cuz i i i, I can't wait for the day I can come and actually join you for a beer in Forest of Maine. But we'll it's there. but it's very, very different to traditional tap rooms in the US. It is for sure. Um yeah. And I'm trying to remember if I yeah, I've been to I forget the first time I went to England. Um uh, my sister and I went over probably like 2007 maybe and then in 2009 I was over there for the course. And uh yeah, just the culture of pubs over there. I mean, um, I know you guys have like more American style pub bars as well, you know, mm-hmm. but in my mind, the only bars that exist over in the UK are pubs, like quiet little pubs. Um, so that's just like more our speed. I think it's just like the quiet pub where you can go and get a 4% pint of bitter and like sit and read the newspaper and there are dogs snoozing away. And um, so that just appealed to me from day one, sort of like that beer appealed to me from day one. And I didn't really know much else. I mean, I was never like a big bar person. So it wasn't like I all of a sudden found the bar that I wanted. It was like, this just felt right. Um, and uh, was something I never knew that I was looking for, but finally found. Um, yeah, I guess like those style of beers as well. Like, I mean, a cask beer in a pub on an autumn day is just uh, it's is perfection. When you get the shiny kind of tap room, and I guess we've got kind of got a shiny tap room, and we still serve cask in here, and it still goes down yeah. really well. But yeah. there is a sense of like home for those kind of beers. It's just like this is where it belongs. 
So if we if we if we reverse from there, because we've kind of gone quite far into the journey of Forest of Men sure. already. <laughs> but I just wanted to kind of it was interesting that the first I mean it makes total sense now to think of that the first beer that you had was like an English style beer, because that is what I think <laughs> of you guys as. My first Forest of Men beer actually was when you guys were at IMBC and I think Paul had invited you over and you just had like a little Linda with two two taps yep. on and mm. you were pouring a Saison and this IPA and this IPA was just, just blew my mind. I thought it was just incredible, um, which is interesting now kind of knowing you more and understanding right. that actually that's not necessarily... I mean, you do obviously do those beers, but it's not the ones that you kind of focus on as yeah, a brand sure. as much. Um, yeah, so let's let's revert back to Forrester yep. Main coming together. So it's you and Jared who who kind of came together, and he's got a real love of Belgian beer. He does, yeah. So his his background um, is is more the saisons. He was brewing um, at this like uh, chain of brew pubs nearby, and he it was it's like a random. I mean, it's the total opposite of what Forest of Maine is. It was like a big restaurant with like a brewery kind of added on to it. Um, but first and foremost, it was like a chain restaurant type place. But um, maybe because of that, because of the fact that the owner wasn't that interested in the brewery, they just had free reign to do whatever they want in there. As long as they made like their light lager and their, you know, their X number of beers, they could do whatever else they wanted. So they started getting uh, wine barrels in and like aging saisons in there. So long story short, Jared was um, from this little weird restaurant chain brew pub. He won a couple of gold medals for his saisons at the oh, cool. beer fest. Just so uh, quickly he had a reputation for his saisons, and um, so he and I had been friends for probably like uh, ten years before all this. Mm-hmm. And um, I would we were friends through beer pretty much. Like he was a friend of my brother's, and I I was starting a home brew, and he was professionally brewing, so I'd pick his brain. And, um, we would, uh, constantly trade beers and beer tips and everything. And, uh, so after I came back from England, I was starting to seriously pursue opening my own brewery and, um, would like send in links to stuff on, uh, there's a website pro brewer where they'd sell used equipment back then. So I had a very small budget and was looking for just this little, uh, kit that I could start brewing on. And he would give me tips on them and, uh, say like, oh, that one's terrible, you know, pursue this one. And then, uh, one day as we've done this for a few months now, we're having beer and it's like, no, I was thinking like we should kind of just pull our resources. And I, I kind of want to open my, open my own place. And I think in a weird way, British low ABV beers and Belgian low ABV saisons kind of work together. And, um, that was it. Yeah. Like, yeah, let's do it. So, um, we knew that we were good friends and thought we could work well together. And to this day we, we still do. Um, so yeah, that was uh, I guess 2009, right after I came back from England, and then we purchased our equipment in 2010, um, and then it took like two years to open after that. Um, so we found this little little old house from the 1880s in Ambler, which um, tiny town. I'm trying to think of like some UK equivalent to Ambler. I mean, it's like population is like 6,000 people. It's 45 minutes outside of Philly, which is the biggest city around here. Um, so weird little town to open up a brew yeah. pub or 
brew pub, yeah, brewery. And a weird, and a kind of weird place to set up a brewery as well, especially in the US. Is it's you know when you generally look for a brewery, you look for industrial space because <laughs> right, exactly. for for because you'll have a floor that you can actually roll things over. You've got <laughs> access points. Uh, you put a photo up recently of that that initial. Oh, Bruce Base. Uh, yeah. I wonder if you could just kind of take us through. So it, it was literally an 1880s. It was a house with a with a cellar, a and, that, it, and that's where it, you guys kind of set up the brew side. Right. So it's like um. So by some accounts, the third oldest house in Ambler. So Ambler is like a little town on the railroad, um, an old like mill town, industry town, and um. Yeah, we were we were actually looking at a building next door that was more of like a proper brewery, you know, it's a big warehouse. And, uh, but it needs so much work. It's well beyond our budget. And, um, then next to that was this little Victorian house and it has a sign outside for rent. And, um, like, there's no way but our, our, our real estate, uh, realtor agent, like suggested we take, at least take a walk through and I'm like, all right, sure. You know, we walked through and it, uh, was pretty charming, even though at that point it was like kind of converted into like a office feel, had like a great carpet and track lights and everything. And, uh, but then the back room, there was a little addition that was put on where it had been a bakery at one point. So we're like, ah, this might be a good spot for the brewery. Um, and, you know, most people's bedrooms are like bigger than this room. So <laughs> it's, uh, I think it was like 20 feet by 11 feet. So very tiny. Um, but we could just fit like all of our equipment in there. Um, so brew house, cellar, like everything was in this one room. And um, yeah, so we ripped out the floorboard concrete with like one center drain terrible terrible idea but you know we brewed there for I mean, we just had our 10th anniversary this year and um up until december of last year we were still brewing there and, um, do you that's... so where we're in the situation so we've kind of followed a, a relatively similar path obviously we didn't have an 1880s house in, in ambler but we had no, a but... little railway arch and we, we felt both, very much at home. We walked in there. Yeah, <laughs> it's like <laughs> welcome. Um, and we've both just gone through our kind of expansion. Um, yeah, and a new site, which is a little bit, I guess, more professional. You could say just a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Do you, when you just reflect on from where you started to where you were not, where you are now, and you just look back at those early days of what it must have been like to try and brew in that. 20 by do you because i do this quite regularly just shake my head and just like how do we how are we still here oh, like all, all the time whenever i and our new brewery is still so new to me i walk in there what this is so weird and it's just like but six months ago we were still in that little room um yeah, yeah we like we skipped most of the steps that a lot of people take like we went from like basically a big homebrew system with like a pump on a skateboard and everything was connected by hoses and <laughs> to now this like automated touchscreen, you know, 15 barrel system. Yeah. So it's very strange. And, uh, but we often like, I don't know, we always ask ourselves like, will we change anything about it? You know, cause like to do it all over again, there's so much that I think I would do differently, but I don't know that that would be, I don't know. I don't know that that's right to do. I think the, the path we took got us where we are. Um, and like made us the brewery and the the business that we are. So I don't know if yeah. changing would be good. I, I'm with you, man. I think every line of uh, fatigue on your face is a, another <laughs> story just to, to, exactly. that, that you could yeah, tell. Um, and yeah. And there's something beautiful about just literally starting at that level to, to go into where, yeah. 
you are now and what you're doing. So if you could just, um, again, I'm, I know I'm slingshotting through all of these bits, but like just to go from, so you set up your brewery in that, in that space, but you also set up a beautiful tap room, which, you know, to many would be considered a pub. You had hampers, you had the old mirrors, everything about it. Yep. Um, now, am I kind of skirting through time quite fast there? Cause I guess it took a while to get the, the pub kind of up and running or were you straight? No, I mean, um, so the laws were different back then. Um, to open a brewery and sell pints, you had to have a restaurant with it too. So it was like we uh-huh. we opened with the whole the whole bar. Um, you know, it was all one one go. We actually we had the brewery ready a little bit, like we were brewing beer legally before, um, like six months before we opened the pub, just because like the restaurant side of it took longer to get all the health inspections and all that stuff finished. Um, so, and I like how you call it a tap room. It was a bar with like five seats. I think. <laughs> it's a tap room, man. And it's true. I mean, in what was at one point someone's living room. I mean, it was yeah. like, uh, yeah, this was a, originally a, a house. And uh, so, which is cool because we had some people come in there like, yeah, my mom was born in the upstairs, you know, bedroom. No way. Uh, yeah. We had, there were like several families that over the course of being open for like 10 years there would come through and like, yeah, this, I grew up here, you know, my, grandmother lived here so-and-so um so it's pretty cool to, to learn the history of the house a little bit um, yeah but yeah it was uh so we you know we had a full restaurant and bar when we opened and that was 10 years ago and it was it was crazy we're you know brewing beer running a restaurant and a bar with no experience doing that um yeah. well again listening to that podcast you're a self-confessed kind of business was not the thing that was something that you was like super efficient no, in. Yeah. I mean, uh, if it was, are, we, Jared. we would never have opened a, a brewery in a house in the 1880s. If <laughs> yeah, we're good that at makes sense. <laughs> running a business. Um, but again, I, I, I wouldn't change that now. It was, uh, you know, had, had we opened in like a warehouse industrial space, I don't know that we had the reputation that we have now, you know, um, or the imagery that people associate with us now. Um, I think, you know, we would have been making great beer for sure, wherever we were, but I think the, our location has a lot to do with just the, the romantic lore about us. Uh, yeah. But the location matches kind of the people, I think, because obviously that was part of your, I don't think you would have been satisfied being in a kind of sterile brewery at that time. Like the excitement for you was, was, was British pub culture, I guess, which is, again, all, all of those rustic things and do- sleepy dogs and yep. things hanging off the wall. That just adds the character. Mm. And, um, yeah, knowing you yep. guys as well, I just can't imagine you have gone into a sterile set and just being happy in, <laughs> in that no. in that setting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have one now. It, it serves a purpose now, um, you know. So yeah, it's like we're but ten, that's 10 we're years, years old. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> you can only do that very labor intensive, uh, small brewery pub for so long by yourself. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So if you, if we go to kind of, um, where we are now, which is mm-hmm. that you guys have just kind of set foot in, in a, I nearly called it an official brewery, but like <laughs> a space that is, yeah, is what most people would, would see as a, as a brewery space. Um, yeah. the other thing that you, you guys have done is obviously, you know, gone against the grain with the styles of beer that you're producing and you've stayed very true to kind of what you believe in, believe in Saison and you believe in British beers, but the market 
doesn't always believe in the same things as as you. So has that thrown in challenges to to your business models, or uh, you know, as you've grown and kind of progressed, have you yeah. built such a strong reputation within that field that that people they want that they're excited for you guys to carry on producing those beers? A little bit of both, I think. I mean, it, it was a challenge for a number of years, um, especially back when we were just in the little pub. And that was like our only means of selling. We weren't really can't, we weren't canning any beer at all. And we were, our packaged beer in bottles was, you know, few and far between. So, um, you know, business was good back then, but you can only fit so many people in a house in the 1880s and sell so many pints over the bar <laughs> over a five, five bar stool bar. Um, and, uh, so that was a little challenging just in that we didn't have like the crowds of people coming, especially as IPA culture kind of crept in. And, uh, and we always brewed IPA. People think like we didn't for years, people were like, oh, they never had an IPA. We always, I mean, I shouldn't say always, there was probably a few windows of time where we didn't have an IPA on draft. Um, but we always tried to keep one on draft. And, um, but then, you know, fast forward to now where we are very well known for those styles of beer and we package everything and you know, everything goes in the cans, whether it's like a bitter or an IPA. Um, I think we're able to reach a lot more people. You know, there's, there's like a very rabid following of, or group of people who are into saisons or low ABV, you know, cask beer, but they're not, you know, they, they, they don't pay the bills. They're not enough. They don't come out often enough to pay the bills. Um, but now that we package this beers, they can get a little further, you know, and those people who are really into like bitters can come and buy a case worth of that and take it home and, you know, um, or send some to their friends. So I think now that we reach a little more people with those type of beers, they're supporting us a little more and we're able to make mm-hmm. more of them more often, which is great, but we're still, you know, IPA still keeps the lights on, you know, it's, yeah. uh, we, you know, we brew one of those like every two weeks and um, those sell exponentially more than, you know, the, the pub beers we call them. Um, but uh, yeah, there've been challenges with it just because we have pigeonholed ourselves with those styles of beers. Um, but I think, the challenges are far outweighed by the the benefits of being known for those styles of beers. I mean, it's, yeah, it's gotten us attention over short, you know, over the UK and, you know, we get invited to beer fest all over just for, you know, being known for these low ABV styles of beer. Um, we always joke and went to wake fest a couple years ago. We're like, all right, we're going to bring the beers that people want, you know, and we brewed, we brought like a double IPA and Imperial stout and people walked up. What the fuck is this? Like, where's, <laughs> where's that's the hilarious. Like on a, on a hot, yeah. hot, hot, Miami day, just drinking. They should have been drinking best bitter and mild, but exactly. You, you... <laughs> and that's what they wanted, but we didn't bring that, you know? Um, and it was a huge, huge lesson to us to just like be true to what we are and, yep. you know, not try and bring the beers that we see everyone else pouring. Um, like we're known for these other beers that don't, don't change. Um, so that and was cool. I, I guess this, the beauty of like independent business and independent breweries is that, that, that you do find these characteristics within, within this industry you know, fundamentally it's a business. You do have to make money to keep the lights on. So it's, it's, it's how you go about, how you go about that. And, but there's also people behind it who have to stay passionate about what they're doing. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess for you guys, you know, that, that passion in Saison and British beer without that, if you lose sight of that, then you lose sight of what makes it interesting for you guys, which is why keep doing it? And I always exactly. reference Jeff Bagby because he's another one. He's like, 
I'm not going to bend to the market. The market's going to have to bend to me. And that can be painful right. at times, but that's what I want to do. And yeah, I mean, again, I can, I know that that must come with its own challenges, but if you, if you stay true and authentic to those beliefs, then hopefully people will come with you as well. Exactly. I mean, the back to the point of like us not being good at business, it's like, you know, we're not, we never started. Well, obviously we started this to like hopefully make a, a living and support our families and everything. But you know, if, if we had totally, you know, uh, bent to the market, we would have lost all interest in this and yeah. would have like closed Forest and Main years ago. Um, just cause I don't know that that's, that doesn't appeal to us. That's not why we got into it. Um, you know, we we're uh, we always say like, we're very, I don't think, I don't think people see us as stubborn people, but we're like very stubborn. You know, we brew the beers that we like to brew and we like to drink and yeah, we're not, I don't know. We don't, we don't change just because we think we can sell more beer. Um, so, and even like the IPA that, you know, it would like, we we're not lactose. Sorry. We're not putting like lactose or anything there. We're like, we're kind of crafting IPAs that we're still very proud of and that we still drink and enjoy. Um, but we're, you know, we're making IPA that we can sell and people enjoy, but doing it our way. Um, so even like when we've been to the, to the market, we're still very proud of it excited by it so yeah and i guess you know that word again is the uh, the authenticity of it means that whatever you guys do is going to carry forward and that's a beautiful analogy of just yeah. being at wakefest on this blistering <laughs> hot day where everyone's doing like slushy this that right, and the other right. or like big crazy uh adjuncted imperial stouts and you you try and play in that market and actually people are coming to you to say why do, why do this like this isn't you guys <laughs> this this feels wrong very vocal about it <laughs> yeah and uh actually i was just at beaks festival which um i was hoping to, to catch up with you but obviously it's hard yeah, to, yeah, the to travel and the expansion and all these kind of things yeah. uh but i was drinking your your british bitter there which was tasting glorious oh, awesome i forget which one we sent over but um yeah cool we, yeah we sent some nice beers over there everything was like four percent five percent yeah but, very yeah. much needed on like a 12-hour day of standing in a field and pouring beers so oh, it was, gosh. It was yeah. beautiful <laughs> You are listening to Track Brewing Co. Presents the First Time, and this is our interview with Daniel Endicott. The other thing with you, Dan, um, that kind of lurks in the background of Forest and Main, but is such a prominent part of it as well, is the creative element, which is the art that, mm. that people, I'm not sure, will necessarily know is all your handiwork. Um, right. You know, I follow you as an artist as much as I do a brewer now because I absolutely love your work. Um, I imagine art came earlier in the story than than beer because if you started beer twenty four, so I wonder if you can just take us a <laughs> yeah. look, like take us take us earlier. We we was it art that kind of led you? Was was the creative output that you initially had? I mean, um, I would say like sort of. So I went to art school before um, graduated, probably in like. 2005 a couple years before i started making and drinking beer um but i i think like the like to get back to like the process like i was attracted to the process of making beer which i think is probably part of my creative side where like mm-hmm. i was attracted to the process of making art you know different types of art um so yeah i think that that all kind of goes hand in hand where if i wasn't that type of creative person i probably would not have been at all interested in making beer uh, so yeah i while I don't always see, you know, every 
brewing beer. Like I don't always see beer as an art. Like there's some, a lot of the beers we make, I do see as an art form, but some of them it's just like, you know, it's a very controlled thing where it's uh, it's more process driven, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of art, I think in some of the beers, especially the ones Jared makes um, or like these wild saisons. Um, so yeah, I, I'd say it's all tied tied together. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the creative side has been, been very cool, especially in the last couple of years where I've kind of come back full circle um, to making a lot of art, you know, uh, started doing the labels the first couple of years as we were bottling saisons, but we would, you know, release like six bottles a year, maybe. So it wasn't very intensive for me, but um, I think just building like the pub out was the, the huge creative side of me, you know, just designing the place, decorating the place yeah. and the whole aesthetic there. So that, that was probably a big part of our creative output at that point. Um, but then as we got a canning line and started canning more and more, you know, it, it, all of a sudden we're at like three labels a week that I'm making, um, which was nuts, especially when the pandemic hit and like everything went into cans. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah. Like night and day. I was like, all right, I need to be making labels four days a week now. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's fun. I, I, I'm very grateful um, that this is what I get to do now. Um, through beer sort of you know yeah well if we, if we can kind of just like linger on this point a little bit because yeah. within this next kind of series uh that we're doing with the first time the artistic and creative side is definitely something i want to dive into a lot more because sure. i mean you are an artist so you you can tell mm-hmm. me like appearing on a beer can to some people might seem as a cheapening of art or something in, in, in a certain way. But, but the, the explosion that has come with like craft beer and the way that it has to be um, viewed by the public and, and when it sits on a shelf and how does it appeal to someone, but also just like breweries kind of linking to, to artists because they're drawn to them and then using their creative talents to kind of, build a brand around that I'm thinking of like Daya with Tom, like, you know, sure. Tom's mm-hmm. an incredible artist. Yes. Um, and, mm-hmm. and Theo saw something in that, that he wanted to tie his brand to. So how do you view the craft beer and art kind of dynamic? Is it a hugely positive thing? Um, has it helped you be introduced to new artists and just as, you know, is it a fun thing to do? as a challenge to yourself. Right. Um, I think it's an amazing thing. The, the whole, you know, craft beer scene tied with artists. It's um, I'm sure, you know, I can't, not every brewery has the same out, outlook on it. Um, I, you know, I'm sure a lot of breweries just kind of like get like something quick put together, whether it's clip art or whatever. And it's like they, the, the labels like a, an afterthought for them, which is mm-hmm. fine. Uh, uh, yeah. But then I think the other end of the spectrum is, you know, um, people like McKellar who have, you know, Keith Shore designing labels for them, like, you know, real true artists, like trained artists. And they, they take each can label as like a finished piece of art and yeah. they don't, you know, I like, I, I go back and forth with sometimes I'm like, ah, what, what am I doing? I'm just like making labels for cans that people drink and throw out, but it's still, you know, a, I, I, I think most people, look at that and see it as like a real piece of art. Like I have a lot of friends that like keep the labels and like, God, it's just like a beer can throw it out, you know, but to them it's, it's like a real piece of art, which is amazing. And um, I don't know. I don't know many other industries and maybe I'm wrong 
in this that like embrace creative side of things as much as breweries do mm-hmm. you know i'm sure there are other industries out there like like the sneaker culture maybe like embraces artists a lot or but um it's pretty great to see like certain breweries really become tied not so much with like an aesthetic as they are with an artist and i guess they're hand in hand like most artists have an aesthetic so you know like uh Daya is all tom and uh but it's, it's cool to just see like branding come about in a different way than like some firm design it and they're like all right well here's your lookbook and this is like these are your designs for the next year and this is like the copy you should put on the label and everything it's a much more organic way that branding comes about these days and maybe maybe that stuff happens behind the scenes that i'm not aware of where it's not as organic as i think but um, I, I i don't know i guess for, from my experience with it i'd say that it is it is pretty organic especially for like smaller independents the only other kind of industries maybe you know, like coffee and chocolate, like kind of the beans oh, yeah. bar, and they're, they're really exploring that. And I guess it's trying to build a form of identity in, in a creative field that stands away from mainstream. You know, when you look yeah. at Anchor Steam, for instance, the the original Anchor Steam labels are just things of beauty. They're, they're amazing. Mm-hmm. And then yep. they got bought up and I can't remember who bought them up, but... Then it becomes market supermarket shelf space, and 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 you realize that there's actually a really calculated way to do design for supermarket shelf space. It has to be very kind of like clinical and um, not too airy fairy, for want of a better word. It needs to just sit, be seen, and pop off. And like I think there's certain brands that have done that. Like Milton Glaser did. Uh, it is Milton Glaser, I think, who did yes. Brooklyn. He's like. Yep. A legendary, a absolute legend of, of the design game. And I actually spent some time, I was just like referencing Can Art. I was just thinking of a new project maybe. And I started looking at, um, you know, retro vintage cans and just seeing them in, yeah. on a design element that they're amazing. So nice. Mm-hmm. I think that stuff's all coming back. Um, I was looking at some, some, there was a list of like best beer can designs this year and i feel like a few of them were like had that vintage look and it's yeah so hard to do though it's like i mean every now and then i'm like yeah i'm gonna do one of those and i try <laughs> <laughs> um so i have a huge amount of respect for artists like that um but uh yeah especially like, i don't know simple designs are the toughest to do it's um, yeah like real stark graphic design type stuff Really yeah point. yeah i mean again i as, as someone that's not a designer it's just like the an appreciation for it and I'm, maybe it's similar to how i reference like traditional british beer where you just it's just there and you kind of take yeah. it for granted and then if you just stop to just study it for a second you're like this is this is kind of incredible mm-hmm. yeah like when i think about cask beer i just think this is kind of incredible. Like this is so regional. Like it's such a small yeah. niche thing. Exactly. You know, it, it's pretty much only on this island that we do it and everywhere else tries yeah. to replicate it. And in the Northwest, yeah. we pour it with a sparkler, the right way to do it. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and yeah, just, to, just, just, just stopping for a moment just to, to take that time to appreciate yeah. it. And it'll be a different experience tomorrow. If you come back and have the same beer. Yeah. You know, so yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's beautiful. Tiny, um, tiny point. Do you use sparklers in, in the, 
at the brew pub? If I have my way, we do. Yeah. Sometimes I come in and I find they're off there. And off the thing, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's uh, we leave it to the bartender's discretion. Like some of the beers pour a little foamier right off yep. the bat than others. And like on a busy night, I don't totally begrudge them taking them off. Um, but yeah, I, I'd prefer the sparkler to be on all the time. Um, oh, it's yeah, good to yeah. hear, Dan. It's a better experience. So. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm just going to carry this, uh, carry this throughout the series of just, just trying to spark debate and fights about spark. I, I, I know it's kind of stupid, but it's just the right. It's just there's a right way and a wrong way, and you know. I love it. Yeah. yeah, I love the, the vibe. <laughs> North South vibe there. <laughs> well, exactly. You stood it in Sunderland, so I guess you got uh, initiated right. into it that way. That was my first. Yeah, my. I guess. Uh, so when I flew over, I went straight to York. And where where do the where's the kind of dividing line? Sparkler versus not? Well, yeah, it's weird. Um, I mean, there are there are pubs in the north that will do it without. Um, okay. But generally, I don't know, man. I don't know what the Midlands is saying about the sparkler situation. Right. But I know that when you go into London, it's like generally sparkler off. Yeah. And then from much. from from anywhere around that region, it's sparkler off. Yeah. Got change that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I won't lose too much time. So yeah, 10 years. It's a journey, man. Yeah. And Crazy. If, if you could go back and like tap Dan on the shoulder, like 10 years ago, just to say, just to give him a few pointers, because people listening to this might be just, you know, starting from, from the beginning of on their journey. And it's funny, isn't it? Because when I've met breweries that are really young and I've kind of just wanted to give them all the knowledge that I've learned along the way, but then are you depriving them of something to just say, just right. say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Um, here's all the tools that you need. Uh, and you've already five years ahead of where we started. Yeah. I, I, I do believe like you learn a lot more by making mistakes and figuring out yourself than you do being told how to do it. I mean, there, there are definitely certain things that helps or it's good to just like ask advice, you know, when it comes to, I don't know, it's like filing paperwork and all that stuff for breweries. It's like, it's probably a lot easier if you just have a lawyer do that, um, mm-hmm. you know, get it done right the first time. And that stuff, I don't think there's anything to be learned by messing up or doing it wrong, but I don't know. Um, when it comes to actually like making the beer and working the brewery, I don't know. It's like when the pump breaks and you have to figure out how to fix it, like you learn a whole lot especially in troubleshooting or when the power goes out mid-brew and, you know, you need to do something weird and finish the beer like five hours later, that stuff, I don't know, I think it's invaluable and you learn a lot by messing up and figuring that out. Um, but uh, I don't know, in terms of like just stupid stuff like brewery layout, I feel like it's been, especially when you start doing a bigger brewery and you're, you're spending like $15,000 on one drain and it's like, well, where, where do you think this drain is best placed or, you know, that, that stuff, I feel like it's huge to get other people's input on. Um, but yeah, the, I think the advice I would just give anyone is like, do what excites you and what you're passionate about. And I don't know if you're not passionate about why are you doing it? Um, yeah. And just like follow your gut. Mm-hmm. I don't know that's that's the best advice yeah well i guess you guys have done such a good job of that like like you say the market when the market would dictate that you do things that 
make money within that market that have already been ticked off. So, you know, just do IPAs all the time. Just do pale ales all the time. Don't try and do niche little British beers. But but then when you do it and, and you do it with, and you put your heart into it, I mean, what was the kind of, outpouring from your local crowd like the ambler crowd were were they just like this is fucking ace it was it was it was wild like i mean i feel like 10 years on looking back on that it was like it's mind-blowing how well we were received in this little town you know granted we had a following within beer like the beer geeks around here so i'm curious how much of our like customer base at that point were locals versus like people coming out to to see us um but I think there were a lot of locals and they had no idea what barrel age saisons were. And uh, I was telling someone this the other day, I forget who it was, but it's like, I think they were much more open to these beers because they didn't know what they were. Um, like, you know, they had no idea what a barrel, what a saison probably was much less a barrel age saison. Yeah. But when we asked them like, well, do you, what kind of wine do you like? And it's like, all right, well, I think you might like this barrel age saison because it has some of the same notes and like a little bit of the like the sour quality might appeal to you as a wine drinker. And uh, I just remember the you know, people drinking these barrel age saisons and be really into them. That I don't know that they would have been into them if you if they actually knew what the beer was. Um, so I think some of that like lack of knowledge actually helped us. Yeah. You know? um, but then. Uh, there are also people that are really turned off by our warm flat beer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, it was like, you can't win them all, man. I know. I forget how many years later it was that we learned like, yeah, everyone in town just knew you as like the warm flat beer place. <laughs> man. Well, I mean, when you say it like that, it doesn't sound like the most appealing thing. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, that's the picture a lot of people have of, you know, I don't know if it's like, it, it blew my mind that like, in, I thought these beers were served kind of, it's like man our like our cast beer should be a little warmer at times but people really want like that ice cold beer and uh even like our draft beer was too warm for a lot of people wow so yeah um, yeah i mean that's just i guess that's drinking culture because every australian that i've met and we just had the guys from range over they just they just can't get get with the kind of like warmness and (laughs) warmness and flatness of it they're just like cold and bubbly that's what you need <laughs> i can't get with that so i get it you know yeah so each his own but but you spoke about something dan you you kind of touched on it um and i didn't pick it up but i'm just thinking about it now is beer uh, becoming art you know i think people might consider it they they definitely consider it with food when you see michelin level food and you you see that yeah. on the plate and it is just it's a thing of beauty. It's laid out. It's designed. It's specific. It's it's got color. It's it has to make sense. When you talk about beer as art, what are you kind of touching on there? Uh, I would say like the like kind of I consider like the art part of it coming in when you sort of give give up control a little bit, um, which I think. Jared does a lot with the saisons, and again, get, saying giving up control sounds bad, but I feel like you, I don't know, maybe it's like akin to like your kid, like you, you do so much to raise them the right way, and but at a certain point, they're going to be their own thing, and like those values that you instilled in them, are hopefully going to like be in the back of their minds and keep them 
being good humans and doing the right things. And of course they're going to mess up a little bit, but mm -hmm. uh, hopefully you put them on the right path and they become the good human that you want them to be. Um, so I feel like it's similar with beer where you, you do everything you can, you can to ensure that this is going to turn into a good beer, but then you put it into a, an Oak barrel that you have some idea what's in there, but you know, sort of no idea what's in there and uh, you let it sit and you hope that it follows the right path and turns into that really amazing beer that you can't get any other way. You know, there's no other way to accomplish those flavors, you know? Um, so that's where I think the art comes into to beer making a little bit. Um, it's like amazing. It, it's so. amazing. Like you, I, I get so excited just thinking about it. Like when, I don't drink loads of mixed firm beers or barrel aged beers, but every time I do, and I'm with, and I'm generally with the person who's who's produced it because it's at a beer festival or something, and you just end up in conversation for like half an hour because you just you just get lost to the it's a story in this in this glass. Yeah. It's not just a fluid. It's, and I know that you guys have cultivated yeasts from you know the local cherry tree or something like, yeah. like that that you're introducing. So you are what you are drinking is a single product that will never be able to be re replicated. Yeah. And that is just amazing. That's beautiful. It like is. that's in, like in, in anything, if that was a raw product of a food ingredient, you'd just be like, wow, I'll pay so-and-so for that. Right. And I, I think it gets a little lost in the beer world. Maybe people don't realize it that much or it doesn't have the kind of um, marketability of say a wine or, or food produce or something. Definitely. But yeah, but yeah, like you say, that, 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 that beer that you guys are producing in that place, in that barrel, Maybe using like the local yeast. There's nothing else gonna be like that in the world. It's crazy. Yeah, and I, I yeah, it, every year that Jared gets the yeast cultured up from flowers, it, it, it still blows my mind. Like, wow, this like just naturally occurring yeast that you found, you picked it like the right day and uh, like took the time and effort to to culture up and grow up. You know, that's making these amazing beers. It's yeah, it's it's weird. Can really we just weird. spend, can we spend just a little bit, like, can you just geek out a little bit on that? Like, just because people will be listening with different levels of knowledge and I'm somewhat yeah, amateur. Uh, so, so like yeast is everywhere. Right. Yeah. Which is it, another weird thing to consider. Like just everything is covered in yeast. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I forget what year it was, maybe the third year we're open. Um, I didn't really know Jared was doing this. I mean, Jared's always got like, weird little projects going on uh whether it's like uh you know some weird soft drink he's making at home um but he's always making something uh food drinks and uh so he's got these little mason jars in the brewery one day and he, he had taken flowers from the cherry tree, cherry blossom tree that was out front and uh kind of macerated them up and put them in a sugar solution and let it ferment out and then unbeknownst to me, he just kind of like stepped it up and up, um, fed it up at the right times with like more sugar solution, finally got to a point and he was tasting it or not, not so much tasting, but smelling it at that point, just to see if it still smelled good. And, um, then he finally introduced it to some work. And next thing we knew we had like five gallon bucket of yeast that just came from these blossoms and fermented a beer with it. And it was like, it tasted like DuPont. It was like, you know, this crazy, like real Saison yeast that just came from the trees. And we were both joking. I was like, did you come in here at night and like dump in Saison yeast to this? Like, cause it just tastes like classic Saison. 
And uh, so we did the first year and then to embrace like the kind of more wine-like quality or seasonality of it, Jared decided to do this every year, you know? Um, and uh, the cool thing is this cherry blossom tree with how crazy our weather is these days that some years it was blooming in like February, some years it was blooming in April. And uh, I think the time of year that it was blooming definitely changed the flavors that we would get a little bit. So mm-hmm. every year we'd have a new version of this yeast and some years were like real tart. Some years there was one year it was like super clean and just, you know, had like, it was still Cezanne, but it had very little Cezanne quality to it and um, still very cool beers. So yeah, it's just this like vintage that we change every year. Um, and uh, it's like a mark of, you know, the Ambler local yeast yeah just gives gives these beers that are already like even even when you make them with a yeast that you buy commercially you put them in wine barrels and age them and you know sometimes they're like two years old by the time someone's drinking them they're they're already like very complex and kind of mysterious beers but then you take this yeast that no one knows what it is and we've had people look at it under microscope and it's been a mixture of all different kinds of things wow so yeah, that just adds a whole other layer of just romanticism and, you know, artistic mystery to it. Yeah, I think I just get totally, totally lost to the romanticism. Just as you were talking then, I'm just thinking, I'm kind of reading a book on Italian cooking at the moment. And you realize that a lot of the way, like the way that he cultivated that yeast was, would have been like a peasant's necessity to to survive, right. like to, to produce food or in the case of like Saison to, to purify water. So it would have just been like, right. this isn't, you know, to us now it's this really romantic, cool thing to not even that long ago, the book I'm reading, I don't know, like the fifties is, mm-hmm. is uh, an Italian grandma making her own tomato sauce and, and uh, pasteurizing it in boiling water so they yep. could have it stored up. Um, yeah. I've never been do that. It's pretty cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> They're like 85 year old Italian couple and they do it every year. Their garden's amazing. And uh, yeah, they put me to shame because I go out to the grocery store and buy my groceries. And they're exactly. Yeah. They're you, just, you just forget that it is kind of like a peasant, the, the, the peasant method to use. And I'm just mm-hmm. using that as a, a, a ton of phrase, but, but, but that would be the way that I guess homebrew would have been done. Yeah, probably. And it's, it's, it's cool to like, it took me way i'm embarrassed to say how long it took me to think to start thinking of this as like the cool ship type of yeah. inoculation you don't you only do it during certain times of the year where it's like cold enough at night so you're not getting like the real crazy bacteria that would ruin the beer um and that's pretty much the same thing jared does like we're we're not out picking flowers in like the height of the summer where it's you know blazing hot and there's probably all kinds of bacteria that you don't want in the beer and you know he's doing it this is like one of the first things to bloom so it's early on it's cold nights and yeah, very, very akin to like the cool ship inoculation. So yeah. And, and Saison is, is season, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. I, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, that's, that's what it's about is finding that right spot to do it. And yeah, it just like you were saying earlier, these are beers that could only be made here, you know, yeah. by, I think by Jared, um, you know, if um, we, uh, if we go back into the, like the English style, Dan, there's actually been a really strong resurgence in the UK of kind of more, dare I say, new wave breweries, like harking back to really traditional British styles. Um, 
So mild is obviously you guys last year, I remember seeing it or in lockdown, like the mild madness, which was yes. you know like a, a throw to us basketball has March madness, which yeah. is just this crazy time. Everyone goes nuts and watches the, the young, the young basketballers coming up to the NBA. Yeah. But mild madness was you guys were producing numerous miles and there was scoreboards and all that kind of stuff. And then over here, over here, it's been a real, um, yeah, it's, it's been a real resurgence. Uh, best bitters, miles, right. um, golden ales, uh, you know, all of these things that were kind of not seen as cool have suddenly kind of been reworked and, and, and maybe just put in the rightful place. And I wonder if you had any thoughts on, on why that might be. Yeah, uh, I mean, are we just has the beer culture just go, gone so far to one end that we have to like dial it back a little bit? I mean, lagers are all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, it's been a slow creep in there, but lagers are very popular now. And uh, yeah, I think it's just like maybe palate fatigue or mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, also, I feel like it, you know, to get back to like brewing being like more of a creative endeavor than a lot of other industries. I mean, like, I feel like it's like any, anything like as a painter, you always like look back to the, you know, the real traditional artists who came before you and reference them or learn from them. So I feel like every industry at some point should look back to like, you know, what, what's been around for centuries, you know, because um, the beers, a lot of breweries are making that a popular these days are so new and such like a flash in the pan, you know that stuff's timeless. It's like, you can't mess with the stuff that's been around forever. Um, yeah. It's, it may not always be as popular, but it's like, it's never hopefully going to go out of fashion. Um, so I think it's just like a natural thing where you, at some point as a brewer, you're, you know, I would like to think you're thinking about those styles a lot and excited to brew them. Um, but maybe the bigger exciting thing is that like the public seems to be more into those beers these days. Definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, because, yeah, we can't fool ourselves and think we can just brew beer that no one wants to drink just because we like it, you know. <laughs> we can try now and again. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so, yeah, it, it's very reassuring to see these beers um, being, you know, consumed more and demanded more. Well, you're, you're suddenly like the coolest kids on the block now again, Dan. It's just taken <laughs> 10 years to get there. Yeah. <laughs> you were oh, always man. there. You were always there. So if I, you know, we've been looking back a lot at kind of older styles and, you know, what got you into it and the history of Forest of Maine and your, and your journey with it. But you guys have just moved into a new site. Dare I say yep. it's become a, a full professional setup. You've got a beautiful new tap room setup as well with all your, your yeah. Luca side pour taps. Um, when I started this podcast, it was during lockdown and it was to kind of reconnect with people and and touch base and kind of keep relationships going that I didn't want to like they wouldn't have gone away but it was just to kind of keep ideas flowing and keep connected and we were all going through something that was kind of crazy and then you know the two the last two years or so have just been absolutely crazy just so much mm-hmm. gone on the world is uh felt like it was just going to burst into flames at any moment <laughs> I was just like oh god Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's not much better right now, but it feels some, some, somewhat closer to normal than it, than it did. But with that, there's been a lot of movements in beer, 
you know, like reaching into political elements, you know, mm-hmm. black is beautiful altogether. Um, so what I'm kind of getting to is, you know, you've, you're 10 years into this now. How did the next five years look to you? Are you looking at outside of beer, at, at what, what can be achieved within our industry? Are you looking at just kind of focused on forest and main or, you know, what, what are your projections? Yeah, I think, um, I was also talking about this the other day with someone like for a long time, we, we kind of kept out of any political issues at all, just cause we didn't want to, I don't know, didn't feel like it was our place as a business to, you know, uh, make our, our views known, but that's definitely changed the last few years. You know, things have become so extreme where it was, uh, sort of like if we make our viewpoint known and you don't agree with it, well then like, we don't really agree with you or yeah. <laughs> it's like, these are such, just such basic issues that we're being vocal about that. Like, I don't know, we're, we're not really concerned with pol- being polarizing anymore. Just cause like, yeah, I, if, if you can't get on our team, if you don't agree with us, then like, that's just scary. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, I'd like to think that we can continue to be involved with issues like that and, use like the you know the little bit of a platform that we have to kind of try and do some good in the community and um you know because at the end of the day beer is just kind of it's just another product but i for some reason the brewing industry seems to be different than other industries where we're like yes we're making and selling a product but we seem much more involved in other things like whether it's art and mm-hmm. you know supporting local artists and having the beer labels be more than just like a label or, or humanitarian issues or political issues. It's, uh, yeah, it's cool to see that breweries like to use their, their platform to do good. Um, and I know a lot of other industries do as well, but it seems performative for a lot of them. Whereas I think it seems very genuine coming from breweries. So, uh, I don't see that going anywhere or changing for us. Um, and I don't know. We're, we're just trying to be more involved in like with people outside the brewing industry. So I, I've been thinking a lot about doing collaborations with people that aren't necessarily brewers, whether it's a restaurant or, you know, another artist, um, just like opening up the world, our world to non-brewing stuff. Cause as fascinating as that is, it also can get very boring and insular. Um, so uh, yeah, as for forest Maine, just like, I don't know, trying to grow our company to where like we just expand the brewery as, as we were saying and we're still trying to figure that out but um hopefully we can have more time to kind of like do bigger picture things now mm-hmm. than like for 10 years it's just been scrambling to like you know get this beer <laughs> made get it packaged sell it figure out how to like run a business not that we really know how to do that now but i think we're a little better positioned um yeah, just looking outside of Forest of Maine while also making sure Forest of Maine is supporting our families. And, you know, we're, uh, yeah, as we, as we get more employees, just trying to make sure that everyone's happy and, you know, it's more than just like a employee-employer relationship. You like to picture more as like a family for us and be able to do right by them and also right by the company and right by humans in general. Um, 
Yeah, I guess I guess people might not understand it necessarily from outside that when you are when you do get into the brewing game as like a small independent, your your main focus is on like producing beer and getting it out the door, and uh, there was never really much time to even think of anything outside of that. But as time's gone on, and especially you know the beer industry has had its reckoning, and yeah. will no doubt have more. But like that was a real kind of point of like right actually. You know what? What are we? Who? Who are we? What are we doing? <laughs> you know what are we about? What? What do we want to project into the world? The world can be a really tough place out there. But yeah, I mean, connecting through. I'm doing. I'm thinking and doing it the exact same thing of like, how do I look outside of the beer world for collaboration? We've done so many collaborations within it, and that has been such a gift. And you know, meeting people like yourself. And we, but we all share different interests as well. That's a thing. So why not like reach into the other interests? Most of those interests probably really like beer as well. So like, why don't we do, try and bring yeah. those two things together? It's it's been fun to watch like the uh, the photo there's fractions the photo show you, yes. you did yeah, yeah 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 that's very cool and the book swap um, you know small things within the brewery that can reach further um, and yeah it's great because beer is such like a uniter you know and um, I think it's it can be the catalyst to a lot of different things. Where, yeah. whereas you, if you were just having like a book swap, I feel like people would be very hesitant to to join in or show up. But because you have a venue for it, and it's like, oh, you can have a beer and loosen up a little bit, and yeah, it's, it yeah, it facilitates a lot of very cool things. Whether it's art or music or photography, you know. Yeah, having so, the yeah, space, think, having the space and environment. Like, yeah, I guess this this is the first. Uh, First podcast I've done where we've actually had our tap room open, I think, but like, oh, wow. because the series stopped. The last one stopped just before because it just went nuts. And I mean, it was like, oh my days, we're in the middle of an expansion. We're like, we're staffed down. We're we're trying to do all this stuff. We're trying to build a tap room, but having the tap room to see all that come together and to see people come together and to have the ability to to bring people together and do things that aren't necessarily just related to beer. I mean, we've got a mushroom growing workshop. That's right, yeah. And it sold out really quick and you're just like, Ace and Alex, the girl who who does it, she has a little kind of growing space. Um, She came up to our running club, which is another thing we kind of set up to. And and I think just, I think at the heart of all of this and and to look back through our conversation and have the pub and stuff is, is a sense of community. That's, that's what you really rely on and, and what you want to achieve. Yeah. Not just like uh, with other breweries, but with the customers as well. You want them to feel part of what you're doing. Um, yeah. yeah. So everything you said there feels very, very kind of pertinent and, and resonant with me. Um, right then we are, we are, uh, we're approaching the end of this thing. And uh, uh-huh. it's been so fun to kind of connect with you and talk to you again. Um, Likewise. But yeah, the, the the great last question is, I was trying to think of the best way to frame it. And I was thinking, okay, you're in a bar. They have every beer that's ever been brewed and possible mm. the possibility to brew any beer that you would require in an instant. Uh there's the TV on in the corner and it says a comet's going to hit us in an hour. And the barman says, what are you drinking? Oh, what beer is it going to be? I mean, uh, it's, uh, I'm not saying this because it's you, but I, I think I might order Sonoma. Um, 
Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Band. I truly do. Um, it's uh, it's up there with like the, the ESA that got me into beer. You know, I I think about that beer way too often. <laughs> oh man, that makes me so happy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I can't wait to get back over there and have a proper pint of that from the handful. Um, yeah. Well, well, hopefully, beer. hopefully it'll come without the apocalypse bit. Uh, we can just do it. We just <laughs> just as a just as a normal Who knows? beer. Who knows? <laughs> oh man, I wasn't expecting like, yeah. that. And and just for anyone listening to this, that was not like there was no bribe, there was no money exchanging hands or anything. Uh, like. no. That yeah. was that was that was organic and heartfelt. That was. Um, yeah. Yeah, Dan, thank you so much, dude. It's great to see you again. Oh, thank you. And there it is, another episode done. I hope you enjoyed that one. It was awesome to speak to Dan about all things art, beer, and pubs, and even a little bit of sparkler rage there. I hope you got that one. Still fighting, still fighting the good fight. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much to Tom Coucher for the production on this episode. As ever, we will be back next week with a new episode with more stories from the world of craft beer and beyond. Uh, Again, thanks so much. If you have the time to like, share, do whatever you want with this episode, that would be awesome. Any support is much appreciated. Yeah, and as ever, stay thirsty.